This is a Brick House production. Thank you for listening. What's up, everybody? This is Aaron. Thank you all again so, so much for your patience between episode three and episode four. Again, I'm just starting with a little bit of a cold open. Uh, just to thank you guys for your patience. Last time, when uh, before I started actually uh, talking about the episode, I told you guys a little bit about what was going on with my life and the transitions that were happening. Well, since recording episode three, even more transitions have happened in my life. I went through an unforeseen uh, transition in my employment. In addition to my wife and I, our, our daughter, our first child being born. So there's been a lot of changes and a lot of adjustments to parenthood and working situations and finances and all, the, all these other things. So I don't really want to rush my content. I want to give you guys quality and I want to take the time to really give you guys something good. So you may see gaps like this in the future. I hope to be more consistent about this, but either way, I just want to thank you all so much for your patience. And without much further ado, let's get on with the episode. We're going to get into part two of political ideology and why it's not as simple as left and right. So thank you guys so much and let's get this show started. and welcome back to the House of Bricks podcast. This is episode four, and it is part two of my political ideology topic, I guess. So last time we talked a little bit about the origins of the idea of the left and right wing, uh, where that term comes from, its historical origins, and why it doesn't quite work. I got a little bit into, uh, sort of towards the end of the episode, I got a little bit into uh, political categorization, what are things that we use to measure political ideas and beliefs, um, and the various systems that people have come up with over the years. Today, I want to emphasize a little bit more about the one that I spoke of towards the end of the episode, which is the political compass test. So the political compass has been around since about 2001. I think if you really want to understand where you might be politically or where other people might be politically. The politicalcompass.com is a great place to start. I'm actually going to include a link to it in the description of the episode so that you can maybe get started there. There are a lot of tests similar to the political compass that I actually like better because the political compass is sort of uh, rigid. There are tests out there that are a little bit more nuanced in how you can answer uh, how you feel about certain beliefs or ideas or policies, or that you might not even have any kind of interest in them at all. Like, say you're very interested in trade being uh, heavily restricted or monitored by the government, but as far as certain fiscal policies go, you have absolutely no interest in that. Rather than being asked whether you agree or disagree with something, Uh, There are certain tests out there that will factor in whether or not you really care about a certain idea politically at all. 
So I would suggest you do your own digging, but starting with political compass is not a bad idea. I'm also going to say that Mr. Beat, that's Mr. B-E-A-T on YouTube, who is a history teacher, and I've used some of his videos in my own research for some of the episodes. Uh, he has a great episode on political categorization where he talks about political categorization, uh, the political compass, uh, similar, kind of similar to what I'm going to be doing, but not uh, nowhere near a carbon copy because I have other ideas. But he's got a great video on that. I'm also going to include the link to his video in the description of this episode. So I highly suggest you go check out his channel. He has actually been immensely helpful in educating me on some of these topics. And Mr. Beat, if you ever happen to come across this episode and this podcast, uh, I just want to thank you from one content creator to another. Thank you so much for making the content you do. I hope you continue to make it. Again, last time we talked a little bit about political categorization and left and right wing. And concerning political ideology, just with the, the political compass is a great start, but even concerning the political compass, there there are pros and cons. So with the, the political compass, even though it accomplishes quite a bit, there are certain things that are missing. Uh, some of the pros that you might find is the political compass, if you take the test, will typically include both social and economic info about a nation in particular, and that can be seen at a glance. It's more nuanced than the left versus right, while still being pretty easy to understand. That's also one of the reasons I'm suggesting to you guys, if you want to start to learn where you stand on certain things, you should go take that test, simply because it's easy to understand. There's a lot of really complicated uh, political categorization systems, or quizzes, or tests that, unless you're a really hardcore political scientist or a political junkie, you're probably not going to be able to understand a lot of the lingo. Not that I think any of you, my listeners are stupid and I'm not calling you stupid. It's just, it might become a little bit too much like drinking from a fire hose. It's just too much information and not everything needs to be known or understood by the general public. Another nice thing that the political compass does is that it clarifies that the left versus right is not the same as more liberty-minded uh, thinking or ideologies versus authoritarian ideologies. And I want to be clear, even though it's not quite related, authoritarian and totalitarian are not the same thing. Now, I know I'm actually, that's probably going to be part three of this series, is just clearing up political misconceptions, because a lot of people throw around buzzwords, and we don't define what those things are. So, Authoritarian and totalitarian aren't the same thing, but authoritarian is essentially just really big, overbearing, very controlling government versus libertarian, which is more uh, liberty-minded, more power to the people, less government, or at the extreme things in a case like uh, uh, types of anarchism, absolutely no government structure at all. So either way, concerning the modern political compass, there are also some cons. I've actually encountered this in taking uh, the test myself. The political compass has a very hard time, I don't want to say ranking, but categorizing you when you have beliefs or ideas that are mixtures of, or views that are considered left and right, and then those ideas kind of get lumped together even though they're, they're opposites. This is also the same, similar for ideologies, like um, certain ideologies 
the political compass is measured, or if you look at it, it's a chart with four different quadrants. And all of those quadrants essentially kind of rank or cat or group certain political ideologies that might be similar in their belief systems near each other. But you could have two different political ideologies that are immediate that are both, uh, let's say, in the authoritarian left quadrants that's the top left side of the 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 compass or the chart but these two belief systems despite the fact that they are both they hold left leaning ideas and they're more authoritarian in nature which means they both favor a larger government structure they could have beliefs that are polar opposite to each other (laughs) another issue is that the compass may place an individual such as yourself with seemingly moderate views in the middle. I think that's the problem I've seen with a lot of people who take the test is that if you're even slightly moderate, you may be placed somewhere in the middle of the compass as if you're just a centrist, even if you hold some more extreme ideas. And I'm not calling anybody here an extremist, but if you hold ideas that are much more, at least extreme in a sense, you might end up in the center for some reason. So the four quadrants in the compass two are great for a more complex understanding, but it makes using it in everyday conversation just a little bit awkward or it's sort of hard to make use of these things in everyday conversation outside of maybe hardcore political debate. The other issue, and this is an issue that doesn't just apply to the compass, but to political categorization in general, is that, uh, Left and right and uh, authoritarian and libertarian belief systems, government structures, whatever it is, it's it's not just political. When I say political beliefs, politics is a mixture of so many things because politics concerns government and people and uh, structures, the structures of society uh, between the the common man and the, the governing structure, whatever the governing structure is. And... When it comes to belief systems like this, uh, we're talking beliefs about economic policy, about culture, about society. Politics, your politics encompass all of these things. It's not just just one thing. It's not just uh, you're a conservative or you're a Democrat or you're a, uh, a democratic socialist or you're a neo-Nazi or somebody on the, the, the far right or you're a communist or you're uh, an agrarian, <laughs> or or any of these things. So it's not it's not straightforward. It really isn't. Despite the fact that it is it is better, but it still can be fairly simple. And there's no real scientific or universal measure that exists to quantify uh, political ideologies, at least when it comes to the political compass itself. Now, concerning the political compass, as far as what ideas it recognizes, there is about, I want to say, anywhere between 120 to 150 different political idea or modern political ideologies that are uh, the most prominent, I guess. But that doesn't even scratch the surface because you can even start to break these down even further to the point where there are niche political ideas and belief systems and philosophies and uh, other things. And you could go down you could go down this rabbit hole all day, which is, again, the reason I'm doing this episode, because I don't like that people just treat politics 
uh, in these discussions. Like it's it's just the simplest thing on planet Earth. It's the simplest thing, and I'm gonna point the finger at the people that I don't like because they're doing something bad. Uh, even if I'm completely illiterate and what they are advocating for may benefit me, I'm still just going to point the finger and say that it's a bad thing because I was I was told that it was a bad thing. It's just it's just it's life does not work like that. It's not that simple. It's never that simple. So when it comes to the political compass, I mean, just to give a few examples, you have um, like in the upper right quadrant, which is the the authoritarian right you have everything from monarchy, <laughs> monarchism, you have uh, several different versions of fat, uh, fascism, Nazism, um, uh, forms of uh, religious theocracy. You have uh, forms of conservatism, traditional conservatism, nationalist conservatism. You have what's called uh, third way, which is almost libertarian in a sense. It got really big around the time uh, Bill Clinton was president. Uh, you have traditional conservatism. Uh, progressive conservatism, eco-conservatism, and those are just a few. In the uh, right libertarian quadrant, uh, which is now the bottom right, you have things like uh, new liberalism or neoliberalism, various forms of capitalism and liberalism, uh, transhumanism, which funny, transhumanism is not really a political ideology, but it, I guess it could affect uh, politics and society and culture in a sense and funny that transhumanism is not just in the lower right hand quadrant it's also in the upper left hand quadrant for some reason because of the way that people who favor an idea like transhumanism think it's it, it just gets so messy uh, you have green libertarianism objectivism which was Ayn Rand's philosophical views on society and the world but again, that was more of a, a, philosoph a philosophical belief system that is, than it is a political belief system. You have things like uh, individualist anarchism, which anarchy is complicated because anarchy is technically, no matter where it is, should fall somewhere in the left-hand quadrant. So the fact that this individual, uh, individual anarchism falls in the right-hand quadrant is really just more because the right libertarian quadrant tends to favor the individual over the group or the government and that's just kind of the way that that goes in the left libertarian quadrants this is the bottom left side of the the political compass you have things like a minor form of communism which most people probably never heard of like left communism uh greenism uh social democracy syndicalism uh welfareism nordic liberalism minarcho-socialism which is, um, oh boy, some of these are weird, man. Uh, situationism, religious anarchism, uh, anti-authoritarianism, geo-libertarianism, Man Mandelaism, which is mostly a political belief system that was based off of purely the ideas of Nelson Mandela. And then in the upper left quadrant, so this is the authoritarian left quadrant, you have, as, as extreme as you can get, you have Stalinism. Uh, you have the most extreme form of communism, pretty much, period. Because Stalinism is essentially just a form of communism. Uh, you have uh, Maoism, anti-revisionism, Mugabeism. <laughs> you have Leninism, conservative socialism, which seems like an oxymoron. But it, but but it's not, especially if you take it in the sense of tradi more traditional ideas of 
conservatism and socialism, Castroism, laborism, distribution, distributionism, uh, left populism, which is essentially just a form of populism, orthodox Marxism, futurism, monarcho-communism, which is a communist government with a monarch mixed with a monarchy. So it's 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 a whole bunch of it's a whole bunch of really weird things and that's that's just scratching the surface. I didn't even name all of them. There is a long long list of these things and chances are you can find it cuz it's not really that difficult. So to give a better idea of all of these things concerning the compass all the way at the top all the way at the top the most authoritarian ideologies are essentially the government should control our lives. The government should control every aspect of life. And as you make your way down the compass, it's more the government should be the primary entity uh, in our lives and exercise a large amount of power uh, versus as you make your way downward, it should. it's more along the lines of people should generally be allowed to do whatever it is they want uh, and all laws prohibiting victimless crimes should be abolished, like drug use. Um, to the more extremes of the state should not exist at all, or people should do whatever they want, essentially. The state shouldn't exist, laws shouldn't exist, people should be able to do whatever they please. And that's like all the way bottom right corner. People should do whatever they want. Uh, if you can't defend it, you don't deserve it, which is essentially just a very extreme, almost Darwinistic idea. And then on the more left-hand side, you're talking uh, less private property and more things should belong to the group versus more individualism. So as you make your way to the right side, it's more about uh, individualism. The left side is more about the group or the, the whole. The top is the top of the compass is more about a larger form of government versus the bottom of the compass, which is uh, little to no government. So that's more of a very quick summarization. I highly suggest you just go look up again, go to the link in the description of this episode, go take the political compass test, actually look at what it looks like because that might help with the visuals a little bit. And that's just a, a quick primer on this. And my biggest issue with the political compass, as helpful as it is, is that concerning the different quadrants and where things are located, despite the fact that it's usually pretty consistent, my issue is that polar opposite ideologies, polar opposite ideologies can be put right next to each other on the political compass. They, they can land immediately next to each other uh, flush. Like It's not like they have a few different spaces separating the two of them. No, they can be immediately next to each other. A perfect example of this idea actually is if i remember correctly oh yeah socialist transhumanism which is just a, a form of transhumanism to to make it to define terms a little bit here transhumanism is the philosophical and intellectual movement which advocates for the enhancement of the human condition by developing um, and making widely available sophisticated technologies that can essentially enhance our longevity and cognition. It's essentially kind of turning people into um, cyborgs of sorts by creating technologies that enhance our, uh, our brain's ability to work. Um, they may enhance our body's ability to function. It also, transhumanists also sort of predict the inevitability of uh, some technologies of the future, 
by saying like you know one day we'll be able to have like uh, super powerful robot limbs that can do what we want them to do or we'll have uh maybe robotic hearts that allow us to live longer and 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 almost to the point where we're abolishing our humanity in a sense by becoming something more because evolution is not doing its job quick enough it's sort of transhumanism in a nutshell and then democratic social transhumanism uh, democratic or social transhumanism which are essentially the same thing because those were the definitions i could find uh democratic or social transhumanism supports equal access to the human enhancement technologies that i just talked about um in order to promise uh, social equality and prevent technologies from furthering the divide amongst socioeconomic classes and that's about the gist of that it is culturally progressive in nature but what's so funny is that social transhumanism or democratic democratic transhumanism which i just talked about concerning qualification or categorization on the political compass is immediately next to agrarianism and some of you may not know what agrarianism is but it's it's essentially it revolves around agriculture it's it revolves around agriculture and farming and the community and it's like totally opposed to urbanization in a sense it's all rural uh stay out of the city live in the country off the land own a farm uh, distribute goods and share goods amongst uh, other farmers and other people who like grow their food or make their goods in in the community it's the polar opposite essentially of this transhumanist idea but despite that they're both in the authoritarian left quadrant because they both favor larger governments and both of them uh, favor the group but as far as the individual beliefs of some of these philosophies they are almost polar opposite i mean to properly define agrarianism it's a political and social philosophy that promotes subsistence agriculture which is farmers growing crops to meet the needs of themselves and the family and their families their families on small holdings uh, and a small holding is a small farm operating under the small scale agriculture model agrarianism favors uh, egalitarianism and if you don't know what egalitarianism is, it's a it's social equality for all people across the board. It's a school of thought and a political philosophy that essentially just equality for all. It doesn't matter what you are, who you are, where you come from, equality for all across the board. I don't believe we'll ever achieve an egalitarian society. It's just, it's not that straightforward of, you know, everybody's got to be treated the same way all the time. That's to say that, you know, that would be the perfect utopian society where, you know, uh, no no biases exist we all agree on everything everybody's just sunshine and rainbows it'll 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 probably never happen but with the uh, agrarian political parties they usually support uh the rights of and the sustainability of small farmers and like peasant population and they want the government to favor the the rural community against the the more wealthy or aristocrats in society all types of agrarianism it just it starts to get so complicated all forms of agrarianism despite being social in nature are anti-industrialization 
They're, they're anti-urbanization. They're anti-industrialization. Uh, we don't like the factories. We don't like the cities. Those people are bad. We don't like the, the banks, <laughs> uh, funny enough. But even then, it's so funny because, you know, then you could even have two different forms of agrarianism that could be differ differentiating or disagreeing in their political ideas because agrarian socialism exists but agrarian socialists if you were indeed an agrarian socialist is so funny because you would oppose if you were an agrarian socialist you would oppose the standard socialist models because socialists by design or by the the outlines of socialist philosophies and ideas urge human progress and they essentially push for industrialization they push for industrialization and modern modernization and progress so that's kind of ironic in a sense because these are essentially two different forms of socialists but they're two different kinds of socialists so you see how this gets so it gets so complicated so quickly which is I, I love to talk about this stuff because it it's so it's so complicated and I love it and more of us should understand that our ideas are complex. Our ideas are complex. Most most people's ideas, most of our ideas are are complex. That doesn't mean they're new. That doesn't mean you're the first person to come up with a, a brand new idea, Einstein. It's just to say it's not it's not simple. Politics, ideas, philosophy, what you believe about economics versus like what's going on in your neighborhood uh, versus what's going on in your city versus what's going on in the state versus what's going on in your country versus what's going on outside of your country. Guess what? Politics encompasses all of that. And I doubt any of us, regardless, I'm not necessarily uh, politically conservative. I'm probably closer to conservatives in my beliefs. I'm much more of uh, an individualist. And even that's hard sometimes because I have individualist ideas. I have anarchic ideas. I actually probably agree more with an anarchist than I would with your standard conservative because I believe that the government should be heavily limited, heavily limited almost to the point where the government doesn't interfere in anything. Now, mind you, notice I didn't say no government. I didn't say no government. That doesn't mean I don't believe that anarchic ideas cannot exist because there is proof that there are societies and cultures that have worked with minimal to almost no government structure. That doesn't mean they don't have an organizing body that helps that helps like organize the community and what, uh, say, law is or how things should work. But there are uh, examples in history where we successfully worked with almost almost no government. There are actually anarcho-Christian societies uh right now that exist in some east asian countries they're they're small communities but they essentially operate under christian anarchism which may sound like an oxymoron but again is not an oxymoron christian anarchism is actually very well documented political and philosophical idea that was essentially started with the writings of leo tolstoy and if you have not ever heard of tolstoy i highly suggest you look him up that doesn't mean necessarily are going to agree with his ideas, but you should look him up. He's probably considered, I think he's considered one of the greatest writers of the modern era. Well, not even really the modern era. One of the greatest writers in history, or one of the most well-known, at least. So, again, 
off on a little bit of a tangent there, but so we talked about, you know, traditional socialists and we're getting into agrarianism being categorized, at least in a, a similar spot to transhumanism. And those two ideologies are opposed to each other. And then, you know, uh, agrarian socialists are oppo- would be opposed to what a standard socialist believes in a sense. So that's kind of funny because they technically both hold socialist ideas that favor the group and a larger government and community in a sense, but they oppose one of the central tenets of their ideas, which is industrialization, urbanization, progress, at least in those senses. And then you have something like a Jeffersonian democracy, which is another form of agrarianism. A Jeffersonian democracy is a form of agrarianism that was named after Thomas Jefferson. This is because he was deeply committed to American republicanism, which is different from modern republicanism. So the Jeffersonian democracy happened, and he actually ran, I think he ran a party. It was the Jeffersonian party, and there were a few other people uh, with him. He was deeply committed to traditional American republicanism. It was developed in the Remis- it was developed in the Renaissance, and if you guys remember, in my second episode, I talked about the idea of civic republicanism. Traditional American republicanism is a form of civic republicanism. It was developed in the Renaissance, or at least the ideas came out of the Renaissance, and it had to do with really concrete ideas concerning civil society, civic virtues, and mixed forms of government, which really every form of government that's ever existed is a mixed form of government. We've never really had a purely anything. The closest thing to pure fascism was Benito Mussolini's regime in Italy in the 30s and 40s during World War II and the Nazis. That's the closest thing we've ever gotten to pure fascism, and I think they were about as close as you could humanly come, but even then, there were mixtures of other ideas in their economies and in their governments. We've never really gotten pure communism. We've never gotten pure socialism. We've never gotten pure capitalism, if capitalism can even be considered a political idea and not an economic idea. We've never gotten a pure form, a government in any sense, in its purest form, ever. Ever. There's always, it's always mixed government, mixed economies, mixed policies, mixed ideas. And that's because everything, everything works on paper. Everything works on paper, I think. When you write something down, it can sound really, 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 really good. You can make anything work on paper. You can make anything sound good on paper. You can make pure Lazi's fair capitalism, which is the, the complete abolishment of the government, the favoring of the individual that... Uh, the private sector runs everything. Businesses provide everything. Businesses provide the structure for society, the roads, education, the market, everything. Versus pure socialism or pure communism, where the government provides everything. Because neither of those things is really sustainable. And I know a lot of people are going to get upset by me saying that. But everybody wants to say, oh, well, it's never happened, you know the 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 capitalist favoring people that I have to you know they say we've never had pure lazi's fair capitalism which is true but I don't think pure lazi's fair capitalism could ever really work even the economists that favor capitalist ideas many of whom were very intelligent uh, many of whom were very intelligent individuals still probably wouldn't favor pure lazi's fair capitalism I think um, Milton Friedman who was, he was a forward thinker, he was a very well-known economist, and he favored a heavily unregulated market that was closer to something like Lazi's Fair 
free market. He wanted heavily limited government where the, 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 the private sector did almost everything. But even he stated, I was watching an interview where he stated even he didn't want, he didn't think that pure capitalism without any kind of government intervention could really work as much as, you know, some people would like it to work. And the government running everything just doesn't work either. It doesn't work because the government gets bloated and then it kind of collapses in on itself. A little bit of a tangent there. So back to traditional and civic republicanism. Concerning Jefferson's ideas, which was in the Jeffersonian democracy, which is a form of agrarianism, Jefferson was heavily anti-elitism. He was anti-aristocracy. Um, he was opposed to factory and banking, which was starting to develop in larger cities and communities. He had feared that these institutions were going to become heavily corrupt. And I mean, considering the modern day, he, he his fears were justified and he wasn't really wrong. He thought that cities should be avoided at all costs because they were cesspools of corruption. I wouldn't say that every city on the face of planet Earth is a cesspool of corruption, though I do believe that, you know, cities and those urban environments are probably a little bit more prone to all of that corruption and wanton nonsense. And his ideas in the Jeffersonian democracy were, he wanted to empower what he called the plain folk, the, the average individual, to do what they want and live their lives as they please and provide for their family. But the Jeffersonians held ideas that were a mix of a number of things. So again, just because I talk about a Jeffersonian democracy and I talk about agrarianism, Jeffersonians believed in forms of agrarianism, um, they were essentially American nationalists. They favored the American nation over everything else. They were anti-clericalism. They were anti-clerical in a sense, which means they opposed religious authority and religious organizations. They held ideas that were liberalistic in nature or forms of traditional or classical liberalism. Uh, they favored populism, which is the will of the people versus the will of the elite. And they also favored, as stated above, forms of traditional republicanism. All of those ideas right there, those are, that's, that's five or six different individual political philosophies, but snippets of those ideas make up the Jeffersonian democratic philosophy. You see how complicated we get when we can go down the rabbit hole like this? This is why putting people in boxes to me, it doesn't make any sense. All I've outlined and all I've talked about, I've talked about two different political ideologies. And I'm not even done with agrarianism because I've outlined agrarianism in the Jeffersonian sense, which is more uh, in favor of liberty and the individual or the plain folk. And Jefferson even said that he was worried that an industrialized economy would create a class of wage laborers who relied on their employers for income and sustenance. And to some extent, his fear would actually probably be justified. I know there are some people who like their jobs. I would probably never want to live anywhere other than the United States. I don't think our economy is perfect. I think the job market needs a lot of work. I think COVID-19, if I haven't said it enough, really showed that. I really wouldn't want to live anywhere else. And I think that you do have the, uh, there are still opportunities in America. There are still opportunities to do what you want. It may get difficult sometimes. It may be even more difficult than it might've been 10 years ago, depending on what the government decides you can and can't do. But th the opportunities are there still. The money's there if you want it. And I'm not saying that money has to be the most important thing in your life. But considering Jefferson's ideas, I can understand in some, to some degree, his fears are probably justified because we do have a lot of people working in useless jobs that can be 
they can be um, automated in a sense, or they could be even done away with versus labor that actually needs to be done that could provide benefit to the people, to the economy, to the market, um, to society as a whole. And I think we've kind of lost track there. So I talked about Jefferson, a Jeffersonian democracy, which is again a more liberty-driven, individual, individually-driven form of agrarianism, versus something like agrarian socialism, which is definitely a form of agrarianism, but it's a different form of agrarianism that is made up of again other ideas. But agrarian socialism combines the agrarian way of living, which again favors, you know, farmers and the plain folk versus the the banking establishments and the factories and the corporations uh, and the urbanization but they they combine agrarian the agrarian way of life so the farming rural way of life where you live on the land and you feed your family and maybe the community with uh socialist economic systems or ideas ironically an agrarian socialist would be opposed again i'm reiterating here to other socialist ideologies and there are more than one, there's more than one form of socialism. <laughs> there's more than one for, there's more than one kind of socialist ideology. For those of you out there who are democratic socialists, your ideas are not new. And you're not the only person who believes that. In fact, you might have people that call themselves socialists that wholeheartedly disagree with you. So fun fact there. <laughs> Because again, socialist standard traditional socialist ideas tend to be more progressive in nature and industrial in nature. They favor progress, human progress, or what we arbitrarily measure as progress. Agrarian socialists emphasize decentralization, which is ironic because at that point you're actually more anti-government in a sense. You're more anti-government and anti-establishment by decentralizing despite the fact that it's a socialist ideology and most forms of socialist ideology favor a larger government. So see how this, see how complicated this can get. See how this is not straightforward. See how when you try to point at your friend and say, you're this, you're that, I don't like you. Or when somebody tries to put you in a box, your ideas are not that simple. Give yourself some credit. Your ideas are a lot more varied than you think. Don't try to put yourself in a box either. And don't let other people put you in a box. If you consider yourself something, really understand what it is that you think and believe. Popular thought concerning agrarian socialism is actually focused on traditional ideas, which, again, considering it's a form of tradi- they con- they favor forms of traditionalism, which means they would favor traditional family, traditional household, traditional um, work ethic, and you know, uh, hard work and working off the land and sharing your work with other people and trading amongst yourselves and anti-progressivism in a sense. But it's still a socialist ideology. <laughs> so see how this 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 gets complicated. Which again, despite the fact that it's, uh, agrarian socialism is a socialist ideology, the things I just said, everything I just said, the favoring of traditionalism, the, the anti-progress, uh, the the favoring of decentralization, which makes it anti-government, puts it at odds with most traditional ideas that are associated with socialism, or at least most forms of socialism. A popular, very popular, agrarian socialist was Emilia Zapata. He was a leading figure in the Mexican Revolution. Go look him up. 
fascinating history there. He was part of the Liberation Army of the South, and he penned a manifesto of sorts, which was called the Plan of Ayala. This denounced the Mexican president at the time, I think this was the 19th century, and called for land reforms and redistribution of the land from the, the landowning classes, so the people that had more money and owned more of the land. He wanted that redistributed to the people, in a sense, so that more people, more of the plain folk could own land and more of it was taken away from the government and the elites and the, the large landowners. Zapata has a long legacy. He, he was killed either during the revolution or sometime after the revolution, but he left a really big legacy because it lived on in an ideology that was actually named after him called Zapatismo. And those who kind of carried on Zapata's legacy, their kind of slogan was, the land belongs to the tiller. In a similar manner that the socialists or the communists believe that, you know, the people should own means of production. Funny enough, Zapatismo led to Neo-Zapatismo. <laughs> which um, was the ideology of the Zap Zapista army of national liberation. So after the revolution and after Zapata's death, there were people that kind of picked up the flag and carried on his legacy and created a whole army and ideology that was named after him. And again, this is so funny because according to the, the National Army of Liberation, according to its adherents, it was not a new political ideology or a rehash of old ideologies. That statement, when I read that, was so ironic. They also, um, one of the heads of the army, actually, this is a quote, there are no universal recipes, lines, strategies, tactics, laws, rules, or slogans. There is only a desire to build a better world that is a new world. That was one of the, the leaders or the heads of the Neo-Zapatismo army. And they claimed that it was not a new political ideology and it wasn't just a rehash of old ideologies, despite the fact that everything that they believed was a combination of various political ideologies. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because it's like, you know, people want, they want to, they want to put people in boxes. They want to, uh, and they want to simplify things that are not simple and they want to complicate things that are not complicated. And that, again, that's the reason I do this. Again, it's ironic because Neo-Zapatismo, which came out of the ideas of Emilio Zapata, which was, he considered himself an agrarian socialist in almost its purest sense, then a new political ideology, which is essentially just going to be an offshoot of some form of agrarianism, the people that tried to carry on his legacy turned into Neo-Zapatismo, or New Zapatismoism, or, 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 or. <laughs> And it's so funny because this, that idea of Neo-Zapatismo is essentially just a very big combination of ideas from anarchism in its purest sense and Marxism in its purest sense. And Marxism is a, is a whole nother can of worms that I'm, I'm not going to get into today. And even then, uh, most his, historians that have talked about that I, that I've seen, that I've read um, in my research for this, that when it comes to neo-Zapatismo, most experts on the subject agree that the beliefs of the group that held this ideology were influenced by socialism, libertarian Marxism, social anarchism, anarcho-communism, anarcho-collectivism, 
anarcho-syndicalism, communalism, a direct democracy, and a radical democracy, all of which, again, are various different political ideologies, but somehow Neo-Zapatismo took ideas from all of these other philosophies, beliefs, and ideological categories and combined them into their old philosophy. So it's funny that they thought that, you know, this is not a rehash of old ideologies. We don't even call it a political ideology, but it is essentially a political ideology with its own set of ideas concerning the people, the government, the economy, and how everything should run. So it's interesting, um, but most political scientists classify or sum up Neo-Zapatismo as a far-left libertarian socialist movement, ironically, to sum all of that up. So everything I just talked about there in summary was three, well really, two political ideologies, the, the main category being transhumanism and agrarianism, and then to emphasize the fact that political ideas, guys, are complicated. Everything I just talked about for the remainder was breaking down two different forms of agrarianism and then breaking down that second form of agrarianism into its offshoots and how those ideas or the ideas that make up that philosophy come from other political ideas. It's not really straightforward, which is why, again, I'm starting this podcast and why I do these episodes because you you really should understand what you believe. You should understand where your ideas come from and why you think those ideas are good, whether they're good for you or society or your family or the people around you before you just go shooting off at the mouth about how I'm this or that or the third. Don't put yourself in a box. Don't put yourself in a box and don't let other people put you in a box. And I mean, even then, I, I, I threw around a lot of ideas there. I threw around ideas like libertarianism, authoritarianism, Marxism, communism, socialism, capitalism. All of these are complicated enough in and of themselves that I, I could study the history on these things for ages. I could make a whole podcast on the history of some of these things and never run out of content, ever. And some of these things might even seem like you might think you know what it is I'm saying, but I'm actually probably going to do a part three because, you know, you throw around something like socialism. And I have to ask, well, and I'm not a socialist, but when people start throwing around critiques about socialism, I mean, I'm not necessarily opposed to you critiquing socialism, but what are you critiquing about socialism? And when you say socialism, again, this is why we need to define terms. What do you mean? Because socialism, uh, what are we talking? Are we talking about socialism? Uh, the phil the philosophy? Are we talking about socialism? The government structure? Are we talking about socialism? The economic structure like those are different things those are three different things so when people you know when i've heard people say well i'm a socialist or i'm a democratic socialist what does that mean <laughs> most most people i ask couldn't tell me they they you know they throw out ideas or, you know about equality for all and universal health care and school should be free and 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 but that, that doesn't necessarily make you a socialist. <laughs> in fact, if you, if you think about some of your ideas for a second, you, you might not even be a socialist. That doesn't mean you aren't. If you believe in some form of socialist ideology, you might be. But it's, it's think about your ideas before you go, you go considering yourself something. And I, I feel like we all need to do that better. And the reason I'm kind of closing up with this is as a way to transition into 
the next episode because right there with socialism what do you mean when you say socialism politics is not just politics politics again is what do you believe about how the government should be run the policies that the government should implement what do you believe about the economy how should the economy be run how should uh what should culture be like should there be religion what will be allowed in culture how should the schools run how should the market run do you believe that your nation should be the the highest priority or do you believe your nation should help other nations um, and focus on relations on an international scale guess what all of these things make up what you think politically so before you go putting a label on yourself or putting a label on other people or putting yourself in a box define terms ask questions think about what it is you're saying all of these things make up political beliefs and you might hold ideas that don't necessarily fit under the label which you have decided to to vehemently uh adhere to yourself or adhere to your person speaking of that next episode i'm probably gonna define terms and clear up misconceptions concerning political ideas and labels like uh for example a lot of people use the term uh authoritarianism and totalitarianism interchangeably despite the fact that they're not the same thing a lot of people associate republicanism with conservatism liberalism with progressivism uh, socialism with communism even though those things are kind of similar but then people throw around terms like marxism and marxism is a whole can of worms that i could do a whole episode on and i'm, I'm not going to yeah, i shouldn't say i'm not maybe i will and then there's also uh, misconceptions because people throw, say, uh, you know, nationalism and patriotism, which really are not the same thing, not even close. In fact, they are two different things. So I think next episode to wrap up the series, I want to define some common misconceived, uh, misappropriated and misunderstood terms concerning political ideas and ideology. And I think that does it for this episode, guys. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for your patience. Again, I have appreciated your support and your listening. I want to continue to provide quality content. So sorry if there is a gap between this episode and the next episode, but I really want to give you guys the best content. I don't want to rush content. I don't want to um, put it out uh, just just to, just to put it out. I want to give you guys quality content to listen to um, and break down and try to understand and delve down these dive down these rabbit holes with me, so that we can all learn something from it so again this has been the house of bricks podcast this has been episode four which is part two of an ongoing series on political ideology thank you so much for joining me wherever you are and whenever you are as we took it apart brick by brick examined it and put it back together and i hope you join me in the next one so thank you thank you thank you so much again guys and i look forward to having you all as an audience in the following episode. Have a good one, everybody. Stay safe, and you'll be hearing from me next time. Bye-bye. This has been a Brickhouse production. Thank you so much for listening.